Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 40. We continue our studies in Jeremiah. We'll read today and study verses 1 to 12. Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 12. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seemed good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, governor in the land and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mitzpah. Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, Yohanan, son of Kareah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Natophathite, Jezaniah, the son of Maakathite, and they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans, dwell in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mitzpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mitzpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you were Lord and you were sovereign in all the trials and then the blessings you bestowed on Jeremiah and his generation, and you've given us your word. Father, we know that it is you who speak, and so speak, Lord, to us. Give us ears to hear, and Father, open our hearts towards you as we hear the message of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of most of the people of Judah, the prophet Jeremiah began a new phase in his ministry. It was now the more positive mission that he would undertake 
for the Lord. Now remember some 40 years earlier, God had commissioned Jeremiah, probably as, a, as an adolescent or teenager at the latest. And he commanded him, Jeremiah 1.10, see I have commanded you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build up and to plant. Well, so far, now it's been 40 years, and the vast majority of his ministry has been the negative calling of tearing down and of assailing the corrupt kingship, the rebuking of the idolatry of the city of Jerusalem, the the destroying, as it were, of the, the false prophets and the false presumptions of the religious establishment. And so he was Jeremiah the critic. He was Jeremiah the threatener of judgment and doom. Towards the end, he was Jeremiah the traitor. But now, after all of these years of plucking up falsehood, breaking down sin, destroying and overthrowing false religious pretense, his mission changes. You know, it's very often the case that a real work of the Lord involves both. There's first, there has to be a clearing of the field. That'd be the judgment of, Ju- of Judah. There's a tearing down of what is false. But now Jeremiah has the privilege of being a builder, a planter. He's going to encourage the faith of God's remnant who are in the land, helping them to build and plant. Now we have inevitably compared the fall of Jerusalem to the final judgment, the parallels we saw last week between what happened to Jerusalem, what was said, and what Jesus says about the final judgment are very profound. It is a type, a sign of that final judgment, but it is not itself the final judgment. There is a future after the fall of Jerusalem. There is a hope afterwards. And so in the dire situation that we see here, after the Babylonian conquest, we see that God is with those and he provides for his people who in these dire circumstances, they're going to look to him in faith and they're going to find that the Lord provides for them. Things were very bleak. John Mackay describes their situation this way. Their land would have just been looted by their conquerors. Everything of value was taken away. The economic and social fabric of the land was utterly disrupted. Many cities like Jerusalem were reduced to rubble. Others were at a bare subsistence level. In In short, it was a time when faith in the Lord was greatly needed. It was the one stable currency. Well, John Newton encouraged believers who feel afflicted in any way, as will so often happen in this world. He encourages us to take confidence in the Lord through faith, despite our trials. Here's what he wrote. Though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, The promise assures us, this is going to be the point of these verses today, the promise assures us the Lord will provide. Well, first we focus on the prophet Jeremiah in the opening section of our passage. There's two scenes, one dealing with Gedaliah and the first about Jeremiah. Now remember in chapter 39, after the fall of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar took an interest in the care of Jeremiah and he told Nebuzaradan, the captain of his guard, to make sure that Jeremiah was looked after. But we find something different here in the actual situation of chapter 40. Jeremiah had been bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, verse 1. 
Now, liberal scholars are very keen to seize on these kinds of things and say, see, there's error in the Bible. It's a very inaccurate uh, historical resource. It's not even internally consistent, and yet it's not very hard to imagine what had happened. Jeremiah had been set free. We saw that. The, the Babylonian princes came to where he was kept in prison by the Jewish command, and they set him free, but apparently, it's not hard to see this happening, he'd been scooped up. As they were rounding up Judeans, and he was quite, he was probably with the people. We know he was, and and so they're rounding up. They're, the, Rama was the, the was the the place where they were gathering them and putting them in chains. That's where you got your chains, and, and you departed in groups from there to Babylon. And Jeremiah was there, and he was mixed in. He himself had been placed in chains, and it seems then that Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian captain, realized that he had a problem on his hand. Look, when Nebuchadnezzar gives you special instructions, you need to keep them. And so you take notes, and he's going through his notes. He's going, anybody seen Jeremiah? Uh-oh, he's fallen through the cracks. He must have been rounded up. And he actually goes looking for him in Ramah, and he finds him with the other captives, and he pulls the prophet out. And then he makes a noteworthy statement. He and Jeremiah are talking afterwards, and Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian military captain, is going to preach a sermon to the Old Testament prophet. It's not a bad one. It's in verse 2 and 3. Here's, here's his assessment. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about, has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now we can imagine Jeremiah hearing Nebuzaradan giving him this theology lesson, and he's thinking, no kidding, no kidding. In fact, the most likely source of Nebuzaradan's sermon was Jeremiah's preaching. Now, Jeremiah uh, had been giving that very message for many years. That We know the Babylonians had a very developed intelligence system, probably copies of Jeremiah. There's just Jeremiah the prophet. Now they think he's pro-Babylonian. He's actually doing the will of the Lord, and, and, and he got the message, and he's going to preach it to Jeremiah. It's also un, not unlikely. that We know that it was a common view in the ancient world that they believed in local deities. He calls them the Lord. That means he named him Yahweh. And they, they thought, you know, if, you're, if your people were conquered, it was for one of two reasons. Either your gods failed, our gods were better than your gods, and they failed you. Or in this case, you failed your gods, and our conquest is their judgment upon you. Now, he's barking up the right tree, but he doesn't have it exactly right. Now, how did Jeremiah feel, really? Was he amused at the irony? Maybe. Was he vexed for a pagan soldier to lecture an Israelite prophet regarding the Lord and his ways? We don't know the answer, but what we do know is that God was displaying his sovereignty by taking the message that his own people had rejected and he puts it on the lips of a, of a pagan, of a Gentile. You know, that's very, that happens very often. If you're, for instance, you're raised in the church and you're taught the Bible and, and you turn your heart away from it, God has other people and he can put the words of faith on their lips. Now, that's not to say that Nebuzaradan has become a believer. We don't have enough information and objectively it's probably unlikely, but possible. But even perceptive unbelievers can discern when the hand of God is at work. We think uh, we're reminded by this Babylonian officer of the Roman centurion who stood before the cross where Jesus died and he exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God, Mark fifteen thirty nine. 
Well, having given his theology lesson to his captive audience, the Old Testament prophet, Nebuzaradan then grants his freedom. Verse 4. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. Now you may be thinking, this is a pretty good guy. And it's true, our interactions with the Babylonians in Scripture show them on the whole to be noble characters with virtue. And how often that's the case when God is providentially, by his common grace, he's raising up one nation. Our own nation's an example of that. It's not just our Christian roots, but even the non-Christians were men of vision and principle and courageous women, and there was all kinds of virtue. And then when God intends to cast a nation down, he takes those virtues away in his common grace. It seems from this these, this evidence that there's a reason Babylon was winning. They had men like Nebuzaradan. He's a man of, of vision and of principle and of mercy he shows kindness to jeremiah and he offers jeremiah that he will take him under his wing and he'll go to back if you want to go to babylon don't walk with them that's not the way to go trudging along in change come with me i ride in better style and i'll make provision for you that's the offer that he makes now we might think that was attractive to jeremiah After all, had he not been the one preaching that the future lay in Babylon? Chapter 29, the letter to the Babylonians, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a future and to give you a hope. And so Babylon was where the action was going to be. As the bulk of the people went there, they were going to be weaned of their sin. They were going to be taught valuable lessons in faith. And so we might think that he uh, would find it attractive. But I think there are also reasons to explain why Jeremiah did not accept it. For one thing, if he were to ally himself in this kind of way with a a powerful Babylonian, it might give, shall we say, the wrong impression about his ministry, that he was merely pro-Babylonian. Well, he was incidentally pro-Babylonian. Why? Because God had told him that the Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the hand of his own judgment. God had given him instructions. It wasn't because he was pro-Babylonian. It's because it was God's prophetic word. But that could easily be confused. And moreover, his message had not focused, had not been about political realities to which he and others should accommodate themselves. Jeremiah's whole emphasis was not, you need, to, you need to make a proper assessment of the way things are going. You need to see which way the wind's blowing. You need to hitch your wagon to the right star. That wasn't the way he was thinking at all, although so many people do think that way. No, his whole message has been, God is the Lord. He is faithful. We need to trust him. We need to be obedient to the Lord in faith. And that is where salvation will come. Babylon was a scene of future blessing, not because they were the ascendant worldly power, but because God had ordained and revealed his purpose to bless his people in the trials of their captivity there. Now we know that Jeremiah was in fact in many ways focused on God's blessing in the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. So we might think, why didn't he want to be a part of that experience? Well, for one thing, he was very old. He would not live very long into the years of exile. Moreover, he probably did not receive instructions from the Lord. I say that because we never read of them. The Lord's going to tell him not to go to Egypt in a few chapters, but he's never commanded to go to Babylon. The Lord had other prophets. He had Ezekiel was already there. He'd been there a while. He's going to raise up the prophet Daniel in short time. 
Now Nebuzaradan seems to have sensed that Jeremiah was not keen to accept his patronage on the way to Babylon. So he gave him complete freedom to make his choice. Verse 4, see the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. But if Jeremiah chose to remain in Judea, Nebuzaradan suggested, verse 5, that he returned to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, since he had been appointed governor of the cities of Judah and dwell with him among the people. Now, I think it's especially those last words, among the people, that tells us why Jeremiah stayed. Yes, he knew very well the future lay through the Babylonian exile as it would in 70 years see them come back having been chastened and, and, and purified in their faith. But in the short term, in the immediate situation, he could see the need of the few people who were left in the land for spiritual leadership. John Mackay writes that because of the need of the community left behind was greater, he recognized he still had a ministry towards them, and he opted to stay with them. Well, just as the Babylonian soldier understood the hand of God in the situation so we can see the hand of God's providence in giving Jeremiah by all these means, here's what the Lord's providing, freedom for effective ministry. Suddenly, notice how Jeremiah is unleashed, as it were, to proclaim the word of the Lord, to move in a free and unhindered way. John Guest comments, his own people had made him a prisoner, an enemy nation had granted him freedom. And behind that freedom, we see the wisdom of Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with them. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't Nebuzaradan who was providing this liberty to Jeremiah. It was the Lord. Now he does set an example for church leaders today as he acts not out of self-interest, but he's motivated by a love for God's people. He shows a sacrificial willingness to accept hardship for their spiritual well-being. And with all that in mind, verse 6, Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. Christopher Wright comments, Jeremiah would serve them still and he would bring God's word to them still. Now, I think the chief lesson taught by Jeremiah's sudden emancipation is the freedom that God provides for the ministry of those who remain true to his word. It's God providing freedom of ministry, in this case to Jeremiah, but he does it over and over for those who are true to his word. You see, Jeremiah, the whole time, his opposition and his criticism was not because he was a difficult person. It's not because he had an obstreperous personality. It's not because he had background experiences that made him emulate argumentative people. That's what people will say for those who will contend for the truth of God's word. It was because he believed the word of God. It was because he was submitting himself to the sovereignty of God, to the message the Lord had given to him, even though it was unpopular, even though it brought him into opposition. Just a few weeks earlier, as he was languishing in one of those cisterns, almost dying in such terrible shape, how many people would have picked Jeremiah as the person who was really going to have influence in just a few weeks? No one would have said that. Well, similarly today, ministers and churches who insist on the authority of Scripture so that we proclaim 
only what the Bible teaches. And all that the Bible teaches, I, I often hear the, the message today given to people like me, you need to be wise enough to know where to back away. You need to be wise enough to know, I'm virtually quoting here, what, what compromises to make. The, the, the wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom is to say that we, we, we should not compromise any of it, that we should not hold back any of the word of God. That's where the wisdom lies. And, and people will say, well, no wonder you, you don't have influence. You're going to be irrelevant because you're not connecting with the times. You're, you're not using the levers of sociology and psychology in order to give yourself a prominence. You see, what they forget, what the critics of Jeremiah forget, is that there really is a God. And we're not just quoting things out of our book. But God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to those who proclaim his word in courage and fidelity. The Lord provided Jeremiah freedom to minister. Notice he, he actually has Nebuchadnezzar pay his bills for him. Verse 5, the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Verse 5. Now, what's involved there are two things. There's a parting gift, but there's an allowance. He's going to pay his bills. And so it is for that those who faithfully minister God's word may look to the Lord to provide materially for their labors. Phil Riken tells the story of a Christian woman who lived next door to an atheist, and he, was a, he liked to debate, as atheists often do. And they had many discussions about God and her belief in God and why she believed it in his atheism. And he, he discovered that she was in particular need, she was in financial need, and he overheard her praying for God sovereignly to provide for her needs. And so he had a, a little game he was going to play. The next day he took out the exact amount of money out of his own bank account. He put it in a bag because he'd overheard her prayer. He knew how much money she was asking for. And he put the bag with the money on her doorstep and he waited. Sure enough, she opens the door. There's a bag there. She finds the bag. She opens it. It's the exact amount of money that she paid for. And she's standing there praising the Lord when he pounces out and says, see, it's not God, it's me. And she she laughs and says, no, it's God making even the devil pay the bills as he goes along. (laughs) Well, that's what's happening here. God provides for the needs of his faithful servants and he is willing to pay the bills. Remember at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, those words, if you ask me for a theme verse for all of Jeremiah, this verse is going to be in heavy consideration. Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. Why is Bible teaching effective? Why is biblical fidelity, that's what pays off. It's not just because it's objectively true. It is objectively true. It's not just because it's emotionally powerful. You read the Bible and, wow, it really hits you in the heart. Oh, that is also true. But it is because there's a sovereign God whose word it is, and he is actively and presently, he says, watching over his word, and he's exerting his power to bring what it says into being. I am watching over my word to perform it. And my friends, that pledge is valid at all times. It is true in all places. And that means that the truly relevant people, the, the, the ultimately influential people, are those believers who will not accommodate the Bible's teaching to current trends and opinions, though they may suffer abuse and opposition, often from within the church as well as without of it. 
but remain steadfast in proclaiming God's countercultural truth. God is faithful to his word. And he's faithful to his people who proclaim it. He makes sovereign provision for their freedom. He provides Jeremiah freedom to minister the word of God. He will do it for us. I think there's a real comparison here, positively, between Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul. Paul operated out of the same convictions. In, in Colossians 4.3, he asked the Colossians to pray for him that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of, of Christ. And so he needs ministry opportunities, but he's not trying to figure out who the cultural influencers are so that he can pull some sociological lever. He's asking, let's pray to the sovereign God and that he will glorify himself by providing us opportunities for evangelism and mission and ministry. By the way, you've heard me say many times, I think evangelism begins with prayer to God for the opportunities of evangelism. But he wasn't done there. He says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6.20, not only should they pray for opportunities, but pray for me that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That was Paul's concern. He was not anxious over the opinion that unbelieving people would have thinking him irreverent or making fun of him. No, but only that God providing opportunities that he would be faithful, that he would be fearless. Isn't it encouraging that Paul felt the need to pray for boldness? Don't be ashamed for God to pray for you, to ask people to pray for you to have boldness or me to have boldness as we should. Now you may say, well, yes, you keep mentioning all these people who get thrown in jail. Jeremiah and his cisterns and Paul. Where does Paul end? He's in the city of Rome. He's in arrest. How'd that work out? Well, let's consult the last verse of the book of Acts, which says this, that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's those are the last words of the book of Acts. God provides the way for his word. If, if we wish God to provide us, with liberty and power, yes, and resources for spreading the message of Christ, we must prayerfully solicit the Lord's help and then we must be faithful to his word. We must boldly declare, as Jeremiah did, the message of God's word in the face of church opposition and worldly scorn. Well, Nebuzaradan had directed Jeremiah to seek out Gedaliah, and the second half of our passage deals with God providing godly leadership to the people. First, God provides ministry freedom to Jeremiah, but God is going to provide godly and wise leadership through Gedaliah. Verse 7, the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land, who had not been taken into exile in Babylon. Now, Gedaliah, I think we know, is a member of that wonderful family, the influential family of Shaphan. He had been the secretary to godly king Josiah. And his sons play, and their sons played influential roles in government. Uh, Ahikam, you may remember in chapter 26, uh, he's the one who protected Jeremiah after the temple sermon and the people wanted to kill him. Gedaliah is his son. Now it's likely that just as Nebuchadnezzar knew about Jeremiah and his preaching, he knew about this family, that they were loyal men. 
Not that they were pro-Babylonian, but they'd opposed the crazy, rebellious schemes of Zedekiah and his courtiers with all these. Uh, they, they'd made covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. Then they broke covenant, and they were scheming left and right. Well, this family had stood against that sinful attitude, and so they were trusted as the faithful men that they were. The way we, get, we, we develop trust by being faithful. And so after the turmoil and destruction caused by the invasion, well, the Babylonians, they want stability. They want the land maybe to even become a little productive. And so they say, the Gedaliah, there's a man of integrity and fidelity. We'll put him in charge as governor. Well, Jerusalem itself was in ruin, so he sets his base up at Mizpah. That's another traditionally prominent location. Apparently, it had escaped destruction. And there he gathered not only the poorest people, that's who the Babylonians had left, the poorest of the poor, that they would tend to the vines and, and the fields, as it were. But we also find that people start coming to him. And the first group that starts coming to him are resistance fighters, bands of warriors who had not been in Jerusalem when the siege came. There were all kinds of outlining troops. They were resistance fighters, and, and, and they were in, they, they, they had, the Babylonians hadn't found them, and they had, they had been missed out. And now the Babylonians have kind of moved on. By the way, you say, why are the Babylonians letting this happen? They have moved on to they had better, bigger fish to fry at this point. And so these military leaders, who otherwise, they're actually nobility, they would have been carted off to the exile, but they had been missed, and they start gathering with... Uh, Gedaliah at Mizpah, and we see their names in verse 8, and their family names. I won't bother reading them again, but these are prominent leaders who had their war bands. They came, they and their men, verse 8. Now, this created a problem for Gedaliah, as you can imagine. Here he is. He's been placed in charge by Nebuchadnezzar to be the Babylonian governor over the people. He answers to Babylon, and now he has these Jewish warrior bands coming in. He cannot afford to have them causing problems. And so this is a difficulty to him. And through it, he shows how God provided wise, faithful leadership to the people. Now, on the one hand, he had to be faithful to the Babylonians. He had to keep them from causing trouble. On the other hand, he had to be faithful to his people. And you may have heard of the name Quisling. Quisling was the name in, of the Nazi, if he was a Norwegian official, who became the Nazi stooge, who on the Nazi's behalf afflicted his people during the occupation in Norway. A Quisling is what Gedalia certainly did not want to be. And so he had to balance these competing goals. I've got to, I've got to unify... These, these war bands who are coming down, on the other hand, I can't let them bring the Babylonian wrath back upon us. Well, his success in doing this shows that God provided his faithful people in their afflictions with godly and wise leadership. Now, Gedaliah handled the situation by gathering all the people and swearing an oath in their presence. And the oath dealt with the intentions of the Babylonian rulers. It's in verse 9. Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Now, I think we can presume that he had had a meeting with Nebuchadnezzar or maybe someone like Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, look, God was judging you. He used us to judge us. That's all done. So let's not cause problems. We won't cause problems for you. But look, you're Babylonian now. And there's not going to be any reprisal. So he, he had understood that. 
He understood as well that the, the providence of God had spoken. And so these fighters did not need to be afraid, but neither should they continue the war. Not to mention the word of the Lord that had come through Jeremiah. The result of that is that they should make the best of the situation and they could live quiet. They should devote themselves to quiet and productive lives. By the way, that's not a bad Christian strategy for any situation. Well, why don't we trust the Lord? Why don't we lead quiet, godly, productive lives? He urges them to do that. And on the other hand, he pledges himself to keep his base at Mizpah and verse 10, to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to you. So they will have a representative who is speaking on their behalf, a man who has influenced with the Babylonians. They should peacefully obey. Well, the people who were left in Judah, the poor, you remember, had been assigned by the Babylonians to tend to the land and its fruits. And so Gedaliah urges them to do that, verse 10. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oils and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Now you may wonder, where's the grain? Well, they hadn't been planting fields during the seeds. The grain was gone. It would be replanted, but it was the vineyards that were still intact. Olives and and grapes for the making of wine. And by the way, it's interesting that the the harvest of the vines took place in August. Remember, the fall of Jerusalem took place in July. So we're about a month later, and and there there was work to be done. There was useful employment, and Gedaliah directs them to it. It would be God's way of providing for them. Clearly, the governor had full confidence that God would provide for all of his people's needs, and we will see that that confidence was well rewarded. I think of John Newton's hymn, which tells that believers in all kinds of need are blessed by trusting God to provide. In verse 2 of that hymn, he picks up on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about how God is faithful to care for our needs. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus said. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so he says, do not be anxious about these things. Here's how Newton puts it in verse 2 of his hymn. The birds without garner or storehouse are fed. From them let us learn to trust God for our bread. And we can take that principle. It's not just about food and money. It's for everything we need. And here we are in so many ways. We have things that we desire. We have genuine needs. There's good things that we need. Maybe it's 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 an improvement. Maybe it's something we lack. But we know, we're reminded of the Lord's promise, the Lord will provide. Verse 3 of that hymn talks about spiritual assault from Satan and the way God provides faith. When Satan assails us to stop up our path and courage all fails us, we triumph by faith. You see, for all of his worldly power, he cannot take from us, though oft he has tried, this heart-cheering promise, the Lord will provide. That was the doctrine that they believed, they trusted the Lord, they served him according to his word, and he blessed them. Well, the blessing that God poured out on these people in the land had the effect of encouraging many others to join them. This is verse 11 and 12. 
Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Now, this is not the Babylonian exiles. These are those who didn't, it's a small number of people, but they didn't get rounded up. Some were these military forces who were on the outlying districts. They then came in. But then you had people who'd been, they'd been refugees in Moab and in Ammon and other places. And they're encouraged, they're watching, and they hear that Gedaliah has been placed in charge. The people are trusting the Lord and the Lord is providing for their needs. And encouraged by that, they joined them. Well, what a privilege it is in times of doubt and distress, to be among the faithful who take God at his word and continue serving him with biblical fidelity. And God in his faithfulness will provide. He will not forget us. He will not fail us. But not only that, he will encourage our brothers and sisters who see that faith in Christ, that fidelity to his word, is being blessed by God. And they decide that they will do likewise. It's the kind of aspiration we should have as a church in times of doubt and darkness. We are living in such times. And it's no secret that many Christian churches, many so-called evangelical churches are being greatly tempted to accommodate the lives of the world. There's pressure upon them. They, they bought into the idea that to be relevant, we have to make some compromise. And then there's churches who go, no, we don't have to do that. It's not that we're obstreperous, not that we're difficult people. We don't have a Martin Luther complex, which is not such a bad thing, by the way, but we don't have one anyway. But we trust God. God's going to bless us. And he's able to meet our needs. So we're going to go on speaking and preaching the truth, refusing to compromise, but lovingly doing the work, quiet, productive lives, seeking effective ministry. And then when they see that he blesses us, others will be encouraged that they too can be faithful to the word. That's not a bad aspiration for a church like ours. And it's not pride. It's aspiration to be an encourager of fidelity to his word, that that trusting Newton's biblical precept, the Lord will provide. I wonder, is it going too far to suggest that the small remnant left in the once bustling land of Judah, these poor people, these returned warriors, these refugees who dragged themselves back, is it going too far to, to say that they were actually better off after the conquest than before? that they were actually better off after Jerusalem had been burned and destroyed and their society had been crushed. They're actually better off now. Well, there's a sense in which that would be an absurd thing to say. Their, Their nation had been utterly crushed. Their city had been destroyed. So many people had been slain. The vast majority of those who were left were at that moment in chains, trudging to a captivity in Babylon. None of that was good. But don't forget Romans 8.28. God uses works all things for good. For those who love him and who are called, are called according to his purpose. purpose. Yes, it was a tragedy with a staggering loss. But clearly, in this respect, they were better off than they had been before the fall. The Lord had restored his favor to them. There was repentance, there was a renewal of faith, and the Lord's blessing was upon them. Uh, Prior to the fall of Jerusalem, they'd languished under corrupt leadership. Now they have this sound and wise and godly leadership from Gedaliah. 
The poor people especially, they'd been exploited by the corrupt regime. Now they, they possess rich vineyards and enjoy its produce. Judah had been stripped of great material treasure, but they had been restored to divine favor and blessing through repentance and a renewal of faith. Their experience shows us that it truly is better to have God without anything than to have everything else without God. How many of us have been through some personal tragedy and we would never have chosen it? We look back on it with with just dread. Uh, But we see, we're able to say on the other side, some of us are not yet on the other side, but many of us are, and we are able to say in sincerity, I am better off than I was because the Lord took my life away from me, because the Lord put me through this trial, because I learned the promises are true. I had nothing else but the Lord, and I realized that with the Lord I have everything. And we are able to say the Lord will provide, or, or with the Apostle John, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Look at verse 12, the last words. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now, in the Old Testament, the fruit of the vine is a symbol of God's covenant blessing. And the people in the land were enjoying God's rich provision through faith. Let me say to you, if you find yourself in the midst of the trial and you're saying, I'm a long way from being able to thank God from this. Well, lay hold of him through faith because he will be faithful to you. His grace will be sufficient for you. His power will be made perfect in weakness, as he told the Apostle Paul. These people had had a traumatic experience as their circumstances were in so many ways deplorable. But they were learning anew that the Lord will provide. Well, as Christians today contemplate the obvious decline of Western society and At least people like me, I'm a Westerner and I'm an American and I don't like to see the decline of America because America's done a lot of great things and uh, there's been a lot of things that have been wonderful about being an American or a a British person or a Westerner. And I don't think it takes a profit to say uh, Western culture is declining. The signs are that it may collapse. What will happen then? And what's our answer? The Lord will provide. We're reminded not to be afraid. Though trouble assails us, the Lord will provide. Well, let me conclude by looking at verse 11, where this small community in Judah is described as a remnant. The king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah. Now, that's loaded language because God always has a remnant left to worship him to carry on his work, to bear testimony to his word. And this is what we see in Scripture. No matter how great the calamity that should, be all, that should befall God's people, no matter how widespread the betrayal of the, of the people, of the church to the Lord, he will always keep a remnant. We think of Elijah. Things were so bad in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. He came to the Lord and said, I'm the only one left. And God said, don't kid yourself, I always have a remnant. There's 7,000, in fact, that you don't even know about Elijah that have not bent the knee to Baal, 1 Kings 19, 18. Well, so it is at all times that God's people may be scattered, weak, faltering. The Lord provides a remnant that continues in faith. And this is the very thing that had been prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem. Isaiah 10, 22, there will be a remnant that will return. 
Ezra, when the restoration took place, said, we are a remnant that has escaped. What is a remnant? It's a, it's a small representative portion, a tiny portion taken out of all that has been lost. It looks back to the past and says, oh, look all that has been lost. But with respect to the future, it's the seed by God's grace from which salvation comes to many people and his work is done in a great way. Paul described, therefore, the early church by saying there is a remnant chosen by grace. Well, here's the question. Which is better for God's people to enjoy great numerical success? We like that. But to enjoy it at, cost of, of, at the cost of faithlessness to his word? Or is it better to suffer affliction and apparent defeat, the ridicule of the world, while we hold fast to the truth of God's word, while we hold fast to Christ and his gospel and the doctrines of the Bible. My friends, the examples of Jeremiah and Gedaliah with that small band of people left after the Babylonian exile began. It shows the future belongs to the remnant of God uh, for which he is faithful to provide and by which his grace will be transmitted to a future day. Let me conclude on this thought. This, this remnant had Gedaliah. We're going to learn, he's not going to last long, not his own fault, but he was, he was a mediator between them. And they, they could have confidence because they said he, he will represent us. He will mediate between us and the Babylonians. Oh, we have such greater privilege. We are served by the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and he is the mediator between us and the true and living God who bears all sovereignty in heaven. And the remnant church of our age has the ministry of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He is mediating for us. My friend, he is mediating for you. And so we can endure all trials. We can suffer any loss if only we cling in faith to Jesus and his all-sufficient ministry before the Father on our behalf. If we will do that, if we will hold fast to Christ in faith, whatever the loss it involves, whatever the cost in our earthly lives, we will discover that John Newton's hymn had it right. He says this, No strength of our own, no goodness we claim. Yet since we have known of the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. Amen. Father in heaven, we glorify your name and we pray that you would write these things on our hearts. Lord, we have different circumstances. We share circumstances, but we live in this beleaguered world. Father, help us to realize that the way is always that of faith in you. That it is by faith that you bless and save your people and you will provide as we trust in you. Lord, we think of some of our number who are even now in the midst of great trials. Oh, strengthen their faith. Believing the promise because it's your promise you have promised to provide. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.